You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. This is a weighty passage. It's been a weighty week for me personally. Just felt lots and lots and lots of spiritual conflict. And I don't want to be ignorant of the devil or his schemes. So would you just join me in silent prayer for a moment that God would focus our hearts and that we'd be able to hear what he has to teach us this morning. So Lord, we ask us, ask uh, you now to open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you, Jesus. Uh, Preach a better sermon than I've prepared and teach us from your word. I ask it in your name. Amen. Uh, Imagine that you get really bad news this week. You go to the doctor for a checkup and you learn that you have a very rare and very aggressive form of cancer. And if nothing is done, this cancer will soon metastasize, it will spread to your major organs, and it's terminal. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. A new surgery has recently been developed to remove the cancer. It's very intricate, very complex. In fact, only the most skilled, qualified surgeons can perform this surgery. But here's the good news. The early evidence says it works. It really works. And if you get it, you should be cancer-free moving forward. Would you get the surgery? Do I even have to ask? Of course. Let me add a wrinkle. The only surgeon available to do your surgery, he's got a a bad reputation. He's incompetent, potentially unqualified. Think Dr. Nick Riviera from The Simpsons, right? If you ever watched that, (laughs) if I kill you, you don't pay, right? Um, That's the doctor willing to perform your surgery. He might lose his license because of malpractice, He's got a number of pending lawsuits against him, but he's available, very, very available to do your surgery. Do you go with him to get the surgery? Or do you wait and let the cancer spread, hoping someone else is available? In a sense, that's the dilemma we're talking about today, because today we're talking about a very difficult, sensitive subject, and that's church discipline. What is church discipline? It is God's people taking corrective action on a Christian to either correct a member's beliefs or behaviors for the reputation of Christ, for the health of the body, for their health. And and that's a serious thing. It, It involves, in some cases, as we'll see this morning, removing a person from the fellowship of the church. There are times when a local church body is infected with sin and surgery is needed. And if the sin isn't dealt with, it will metastasize and the whole body is put in danger. Maybe this has been your story in a church where sin is not dealt with and 
abuse is overlooked or enabled? Are malicious gossips tear a church into warring factions or a false teacher comes into a church and can lead an entire church into false beliefs and into dangerous cult-like practices because sin was not checked? There are times there's cancer and it has to be removed. And sometimes a cancerous person has to be removed for the health of the body. It's a delicate surgery though. In fact, it's the kind of surgery that can be botched in almost countless ways. And maybe that's your story with church. Maybe you saw leaders abuse the authority of church discipline or someone was punished or shamed or humiliated in some way and there was friendly fire and lots of innocent people got hurt and maybe people got kicked out of the church for no good reason and now they're wounded and disillusioned and maybe even disillusioned with Jesus. Surgery is necessary. It's a, it's a difficult surgery. And that's, here's what that means for today. We all need to go to spiritual med school, okay? This is spiritual med school because we have to be trained in what this is and understand it and how delicate and complex this is or we won't embrace it and we sure won't practice it well. We're in a series on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We've seen the church is a total mess. The biggest mess in the church is disunity. Division. These are people warring with each other, and Paul is addressing that throughout the first four chapters of the book. And we saw a few weeks ago at the end of chapter four, Paul gets really serious with these people. He says, either you deal with your issues or I'm gonna come and deal with them. That's Paul's wait until dad gets home talk to these people. And we think, whoa, Paul, seriously? I mean, they're disunified, but how big are the problems in this church? Well, Paul tells us, In chapter five, we see just how big the problems are. Paul says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You can sense Paul's exasperation here, can't you? Corinthians, are you actually doing this? What is Paul so upset about? Two things. First, people in this church are practicing sexual immorality, not struggling with sexual immorality, not succumbing to the temptation of sexual immorality. They are openly, publicly, unrepentantly practicing sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia, and in the New Testament, that word refers to any sex that's outside of God's design. Now, parents, here's the trigger warning for you as we move forward, okay? Paul's gonna talk a lot about this sin in the coming chapters because this was a big deal in the Corinthian church. It's a big deal in our culture. So we're gonna be talking about sexual immorality a lot in the coming weeks. Not because I want to, the Bible talks about it, okay? So we're talking about it. We need to see what God has to say about it. So just a trigger warning to you parents, read ahead. Okay, and use discretion whether your kids are ready for these talks. That's the issue here. Paul says that a man in the church has his father's wife. That phrase is taken word for word from Leviticus 18 in the Old Testament where God prohibits any kind of incestuous relationships. God's design is that you don't marry a family member, that you don't sleep with a family member. Makes it very clear. Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. This is basic stuff. You don't cleave to your family as a husband or wife. 
This is God's design. It's clearly out of accord with God's design. Now, there's a lot of things we don't know. We don't know if this guy is cohabitating with his bio mom or it's a stepmom. It's probably the latter. We don't know whether dad is dead or alive. It's fairly clear that mom is not a believer, but the son is because the son is the one who's disciplined. They don't mention the mom being disciplined by the church. But in any case, this isn't like a gray area, okay? God's word is clear. This is out of bounds. You shouldn't do this. That's a problem. Here's the bigger problem. Even the culture knew this was out of bounds. The pagans knew this. You don't do this, okay? Uh, Greco-Roman culture was very sexually permissive, way more sexually permissive than a lot of our culture is, if you can believe that or not. But they knew there's some relationships are out of bounds. And a dude being with his mom in this kind of relationship, out of bounds. In fact, it was illegal according to Roman law. So here's the problem. It's not just a sin in the church. It's a scandal for the church. The surrounding communities look at him and going, whoa, we thought we were crazy. Look at them. They are messed up. That's the problem here. Here's the biggest problem. You know, Paul is not exasperated so much because of the sin. Do you know what he's angry about? It's the church's attitude toward the sin. Because what does he say? Not only is this sin publicly, openly, unrepentantly being committed, you are arrogant. Later in verse six, he'll say, you are boasting. How are they boasting about this sin? Well, it appears that the Corinthians had a very skewed view of what it meant to live under grace and a very skewed view of the body. We'll see this in the chapters to come. They thought living under God's grace means we are free from obedience. We're free from having to do what God says. We can live however we want because we're under grace and they're just boasting and how free they can be. That's not what grace is, by the way. They're boasting about it. That's one thing they're boasting about. Two, they're boasting in their elevated spiritual status. You see it in the church. These people thought they were spiritual. They were obsessed with spiritual gifts and it's almost like they were living on this higher spiritual plane of reality where, you know, the body, what you do with your body, who cares? That's just the body. And so do whatever you want with your body. We care about the spirit. We're under grace. And they're just boasting in this permissive attitude that's way more permissive than anything that would be tolerated in the culture. And Paul says, you guys are deluded. So here's the question for us. Um, Why is sexual immorality such a big deal? Why does God care so much about it? That's a good question, isn't it? Not gonna answer today, okay? You gotta come back in two weeks. And I'm going to talk a lot about why sex matters so much to God. So stay tuned, okay? But but look at Paul's solution here. Rather than boasting, the church should mourn. They should grieve over their permissive attitude towards sin. And this grief, this emotion should lead to action. And Paul is very clear about the action. He says, let this man be removed. He needs to be out of your fellowship. And, And lest Paul be unclear about that, he says it four different times. Let him be removed, verse two. Hand him over to Satan, verse five. Clean out the impurity, verse seven. And then he goes Old Testament on us at the end of the passage, verse 13. Purge the evil man from among you, which is a direct quote from Deuteronomy and excluding someone from the people of God. This is a radical measure, isn't it? This is surgery. This is DEFCON one for the church. 
This is a public scandal. If you don't do something, all of your spiritual health is in danger. You need a radical extraction of the cancer for the church's sake, for the reputation of Christ's sake, for this believer's sake who's committing the sin, as we will see. So what is this passage about? What is Paul telling the church to do? Why is it necessary? And here's the million-dollar question. How does that impact the way we live with each other? What does it mean for us to live in this kind of community? These are complex issues. We need to go to med school, okay? This is spiritual med school, and we need to answer three questions. First, what kind of community does God call us to be? What kind of community would actually practice discipline? Second, why is discipline crucial? And then third, how can we become skilled surgeons with this, both in removing sin in our own life and then, if necessary, helping other people to deal with sin in theirs, okay? We're doing a lot. It's probably two sermons. I could have preached it in two weeks. I'm not going to because I want to finish 1 Corinthians, okay? So just hang with me. We're going to go over. Don't panic. It's, it's, I pray it's helpful to you, all right? First, what kind of community is the church? Here's what's so critical for us. Unless we define the church properly, Discipline seems arbitrary at best and cruel or oppressive at worst. We have to understand what the church is and define that properly to define what discipline is and understand that properly. Here's the challenge we face with a text like this. We live in a capitalistic, consumer-oriented culture where people tend to view the church as a product to consume. The church is a provider of religious goods and services. And if we like the product, what do we do? We serve the church. We have that transaction, right? Here's the great news about living in America, though. If you don't like the preaching or the tech at this church or the programs or the people at this church, good news, there's another church down the street. And they might be a better provider of religious goods and services. And all of us are competing for your religious goods and services. It's capitalism at its finest, right? Here's the byproduct of that. It makes it very, very easy to sort of float in your commitment to the church. Because I can be committed to Jesus, but I sort of like this provider of religious goods and services over here, and I sort of like this one over here, and maybe I'll dabble in this and dabble in that and dabble in that, but I never have any tangible, concrete commitment to people. According to the New Testament, the church is not a 501c religious organization. The church is not a provider of religious goods and services. The church is not the programs that are run. It's not the leadership of the church. The church is not a what at all. It's a who. It's a people. It's not that Christians should go, I wonder how that church is going to provide religious goods and services. You start by saying, I am the church. I am part of God's people, and God's people exist in local, visible communities where they're committed not just to Christ, but to each other. We live in consumer society. New Testament community is covenant community. We are committed to Christ, not just Christ, but to each other. And being committed to each other means I can name the people I'm committed to because they're part of my church too. That's a different definition of church, isn't it? In fact, let's just see what Paul assumes the church is from this passage so we can make sense out of discipline. According to this passage, here's just the assumption. The church is a visible community. It's an aligned community. It's an accountable community. That's what the church is. It's visible, aligned, and accountable. 
First thing here, the local church is visible. God's people have always existed in local expressions where you know if someone is part of a church or not part of a church. In fact, this passage makes no sense without that assumption because what does Paul say? Let this person be removed. Removed from what? Just the service or the programs? No, from the fellowship of people. Here's the assumption. You can't put someone outside your community unless there's what? An inside of your community. (laughs) Unless you have a defined community that's visible and you know here's who's outside of it, here's who's inside. Paul will talk about outsiders. He'll talk about insiders. He'll say there's different standards for outsiders than there are for insiders. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul will say, when a person repents, you readmit them into membership, right? So so who was this church? Well, the Corinthian church couldn't have been anyone who showed up on a Sunday, okay? Because we know non-believers were showing up. They were checking out this church too. So who is the church at Corinth? The assumption is it's a visible membership. These people knew they were a part of this local church and they knew what commitment meant and they visibly identified together. God's people have always been a physical, visible gathering. Like in the Old Testament, you knew you were part of Israel, right? It wasn't just, I'm part of Israel in my heart. No, like you were literally living with the Israelites. And to be excluded from fellowship with God meant putting outside the camp where the physical Israelites were not. So you knew separation, this is a big deal. It's a visible separation. The church, the new covenant people of God was always meant to be an identifiable, visible public community in the world. In the, in the, in the first century, there was no such thing as committing to Jesus in your heart and then deciding to join a church, <laughs> right? It was, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe in Jesus get baptized, go public, which means I'm on team Jesus and team Jesus is Corinth here. I know their names, they know mine. Now we're living life together. Does that make sense? That's a different version of church, isn't it? Not a lot of option for floating in that definition of church. Signing up for Jesus is signing up for team Jesus. That's the first thing Paul assumes. Here's the second, that the visible community of faith is aligned in their beliefs. So to be a part of this means that we actually believe some of the same things we hold people to the same standards and we can expect that from each other. Look what Paul goes on to say. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister, if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So apparently Paul wrote a 1 Corinthians before 1 Corinthians, okay? He wrote a letter to this church previously, and he said, don't associate with believers who practice these sins. And the Corinthians misinterpreted him and said, don't associate with anyone who sins, And that causes a problem, doesn't it? Because the Corinthians are like, uh, everyone is sinning. Everyone in the culture. How can I have a business partnership? How can I do anything? Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Don't associate with a person who names the name of Jesus and practices sin. Now, is Paul saying, don't associate with Christians who sin? No, that would make for a very lonely church, wouldn't it? It's all a church of one, just sitting in our homes, avoiding each other because we're all sinning. Christians sin. 
Christians sin in big, flagrant, horrible ways. Christians continue to grapple with sin throughout their life till Jesus takes them home. That's not what Paul's talking about. All of us fall short of the standard all the time. That's why the gospel is good news. The problem Paul's talking about is people who want to change the standard. He's talking about people who say, I'm a Christian, I belong to Jesus, I'm in the community of faith, but it's not a big deal to remain in these practices. Stop freaking out, guys. God doesn't really care about these things. He cares about my heart. My heart's in the right place. Who cares about these behaviors? This is a person who is trying to take the world's behavior into the church and normalize it. It's public, persistent, unrepentant sin. And Paul says that person is not on your team. They say they're on your team. They're not on your team. And you can't treat them like you're a brother or sister because you say, if you say you follow Jesus as Lord, that means you'll do what he says. And you're saying, I don't have to do what he says. That's a fundamental problem. Does that make sense? What does that assume about the church? It assumes that we are an aligned community, right? We all fall short of the standard, but guess what? We have a standard. There's a standard of belief. There's a standard of behavior. There's things we hold like this, right? We're not gonna compromise on them. There's things we hold open-handedly. There's things we hold like this and go, who knows? 10 Christians have nine opinions about those things, right? But we know where the strike zone is so we know when we're missing it. Does that make sense? It's an aligned community. Finally, and this is the most sobering one, especially in our culture, it's an accountable community. Paul is very clear that God's people are authorized to make judgments about other believers. Really, Jeff? Yeah, it's literally what he says. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, I love this because Paul is thinking exactly backwards to the way Christians so often think. There is this huge temptation as a Christian to just decry how horrible the world is all the time. The world is doomed. Look how the cultural rot and decay and the world is terrible and I can't believe that. And you know what Paul would say? Are you surprised? Paul says the world is under the power of who? The evil one, Satan, (laughs) right? Uh, And and so look, to put it in today's terms, the world is gonna world, Okay. (laughs) We should not be surprised when the world acts that way at all. And and if you're not a believer in Jesus and you're here today, I'm so glad. Listen, we have no judgment over you because we have no jurisdiction over you. That's for God to deal with you. Our only message to you is come and learn about Jesus. We just want you to know Jesus. But it's a different realm. Here's what's sobering though. We have no business pronouncing judgment on the world. We have all sorts of business pronouncing judgment within the church. That's what Paul says, that we are accountable to each other, which means this, no Christian can say, my walk with Jesus is my business and you have no place to speak into my life. That's the American in you talking. Not the Jesus in you talking, okay? If you think that way, that all my relationship with Jesus, only I can judge my relationship with Jesus. You can't judge. Actually, Paul says exactly the opposite here. He says, we are required to pronounce judgments. And you say, hold up, Jeff. There's a problem. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 4, stop passing judgment on one another? Doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 7, judge not, 
lest ye be judged. It's the one time we quote from the King James, right? Just lest ye be judged. So, so how do we reconcile those? Paul says, don't judge. Jesus says, don't judge. And here Paul says, judge. Two different kinds of judgment. Like I said a few weeks ago, the Bible never calls us to have critical hearts. Ever. We're not supposed to personally look down on people, disdain people, condemn them, write them off in their heart, feel superior to them. We have to put that away. That's a wicked judgment. The Bible does not call us to have critical hearts. You know what it does call us to have? Critical heads. We are called to discern truth from error. We are called to discern good from evil because you can't love people and not make those distinctions. What is assumed here is that the church is authorized when people are in persistent sin to say in agreement with one another, you are in persistent sin and you are not living consistently with your profession of Christ and that's a big deal. It's a danger to your soul. It's a danger to the church. It, it is against the reputation of Christ. Repent. And, and here's what is even more radical Throughout the New Testament, it's clear that Christ judges and disciplines his people through his people. That Christ actually authorizes us to do this. What does Paul say earlier? For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and it is if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of who? Our Lord Jesus. What is Paul saying here? You are going to assemble. You are going to make a judgment. My authority is behind this judgment. Who else's authority is behind it? Jesus. Jesus is acting through his people to pronounce judgment on an unrepentant sinner so that they can be excluded from the community of faith. That's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 18 when he talks about church discipline. He says that what you agreed to on earth will have been agreed to in heaven already. So when the church biblically, correctly, lovingly practices church discipline, we are displaying Christ's judgment on earth. Now, I'm not going to get into the mechanics of how because that's five more talks, right? Come to the membership class to learn that. But the point is this. There's an authorization for the church to hold its people accountable and say, we can't in good conscience call you a believer anymore or treat you that way. So you cannot exist within this realm of covenantal blessing in the church. And you're gonna have to experience what it's like to be separated from that. Now there's a redemptive purpose and I'll get there, but that's sobering, isn't it? This is sobering stuff. We are in each other's business, whether we like it or not as the church. Okay, Christ has authorized things for it to work this way. You know what that means? This applies just as much to me as it does to you. If it means if I fly off the handle and go crazy someday, God forbid, do you know what you should do? You should say, Jeff, repent. And if I don't repent, you should say, no, Jeff, we plead with you, repent. And the most loving thing you could do is gather as the membership of Creekside and say, Jeff, we can no longer regard you as a brother or have normal Christian association with you so that you experience life apart from the blessedness of God's people and that would cause you to repent. That would be a loving thing for you to do and you have the authority to do it to me, okay? This is a sobering reality. This is weighty stuff, family. What's the practical implication? We have a membership class coming up. <laughs> February 4th. Nine to one. Listen, uh, if you've been dating at Creekside for a while and kind of want to take the next step in your relationship, right? Make things formal. 
That's what membership for. Here's why we have a membership process. It's very simple. It's very, very simple. Is our culture a high commitment or a low commitment culture? Low. Consumeristic. Consumeristic. If I don't like the product, I'll back out. I slide into relationships all the time. Very low. Is New Testament community high commitment or low commitment? High. High where our spiritual welfare is at stake. Okay? How do you bridge a low commitment culture and a high commitment Bible? You got to talk about what it means to be part of the church, right? I don't know how else to do this. That's why we ask people, like, I don't presume to have authority in your life, okay? I need to know you're committed here. Creekside is not whoever shows up on a Sunday morning. There are non-believers who show up. There are people checking it out. That's not the church. The church is the people who have formally decided, I'm here and I want to be accountable. And we exist in a covenant relationship of mutual accountability. And that matters to me. And here's why it matters. I'm going to die someday and appear before Lord Jesus. And the Bible puts the fear of God in me about what that day is going to be like for pastors. You know the scariest verse in the Bible for pastors? I'll tell you. Hebrews 13, 17, and 18 says that we watch over the flock as those who will have to give an account. And I'm not giving an account for vision or some vague institution. Do you know what I'm giving an account for? People. Individual people. And did I do everything I could? Did we do everything we could to help them grow in Christ? It is sobering. So I want to know who I'm giving an account for, okay? And one way you could help me do that is by taking the class so I know you're with me. And I know we're in this together. And let's bridge the gap between a lower commitment culture and a high commitment Bible, okay? Because if we don't bridge that gap, like these commands to discipline, they're crazy, aren't they? Right? They're, they're, they're crazy. I mean, imagine that you went to a church and you like the religious goods and services, but no one really knows you. You like the preaching and the, you know, and the worship. And then one day I come up here and I say, hey guys, uh, you don't know this guy. A lot of you don't, but there's a guy in the church, uh, just not, so I don't offend anybody. Let's, let's pretend his name is Jeff. There's a guy in the church named Jeff and uh, whew, Jeff's committing incest, just to let you know. Yeah. Wow, right? I mean, oh, that's embarrassing. Okay, so anyway, uh, we're gonna regard Jeff as a non-believer and, uh, you know, I'll, we'll let you know who he is, but just treat him that way, okay? What would you think of that church? That was the weirdest thing I've ever been a part of, right? <laughs> Who's Jeff? When do I meet him so I can excommunicate him, right? Like, what is going on? That's why there's a disconnect. Until there's an identifiable church that's covenantally committed, it makes no sense to name names and do this. Does that make sense? We need that kind of community to practice this kind of discipline. Okay. Now, with that framework... Why do we do it? Three reasons, and this gets to the heart of what I want to say. The reason for church discipline is this. It is always, 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 always redemptive. Church discipline is always motivated by love. Do you know what the church does not have the authority to do? Punish people. We can't pay people back for their sins. That's God's job. The only accountability we have is to lovingly address people when they're out of accord and we do it lovingly for three reasons. The reputation of Jesus, the health of the body, and the good of the person. It's all motivated by love. First, we do it because of the reputation of Christ. What is Paul concerned about first and foremost here? That the church is practicing behavior that's not even tolerated in the culture. 
Do you know what that means when you have a public scandal like this? The world looks at the church and goes, wow. I mean, I kind of thought I was messed up, but they, they are hypocrites. Can you believe they're doing that? And it impugns the reputation of Jesus himself because who are we? We're the salt of the world and the light of the world. We are called to represent him. And when we don't take sin seriously, who does it dishonor? Jesus. We're saying we're not called to reflect Jesus. We can live however we want. This is about the glory of God. That's the first reason we discipline, to restore the reputation of the church and show that we take sin as seriously as our God does. Does that make sense? That's the first reason that Paul is exercised. Next, we do this for the church's sake. Here's the problem with sin. It's cancer. And if you leave cancer alone, does it stay like it is? It spreads. Sin spreads unless it's dealt with. And that's why Paul says this, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. (laughs) Keep going. Sacrificed, yeah. I'm not like my dad where he can just say, let me tell you what it means. I need the passage. (laughs) Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is is referring back to a a practice in the Old Testament. You know, before the Israelites left for the promised land and were delivered from Egypt, you know what they did? They cleaned out the leaven. Cleaned out the leaven. You know what leaven is? It's not just yeast. Leaven is a little bit of dough you keep over from each lump. And you put that leaven with the yeast in a new lump and it helps that new lump to rise. And you take a little bit off of that lump and put it in the next lump. And that's the leaven. And leaven has this effect of just permeating and fermenting through the dough, right? So that the dough can rise. Here's the problem with leaven in the ancient world, right? If you use the same leaven week after week after week after week, that leaven gets nasty. In fact, it gets dirty and diseased. So every year, once a year, what would the Israelites do? They would clean out the leaven and start fresh for health reasons, but there's a bigger reason and it's a significant reason. It's this. Leaven is a picture throughout the Bible of the permeating effects of sin. And so that image of cleaning out the leaven means get rid of sin in your life. Tear it out or it'll metastasize. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Get rid of it. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was about. That's what the Exodus was about. It was about God freeing his people from the leaven, the corrupting influence of slavery in Egypt and idolatry so they could serve him in holiness. What's that a picture of? Us. Because Christ, the true Passover lamb, we live under his blood now and we've been delivered from the leaven of our own life and the impurity and we've been freed. So do you know what we are in Christ already? Do you know how God views us in Christ? We're pure in Christ. We're unblemished in Christ. We're whole in Christ. So do you know how we should act? Like what we are. God has made us new people act like new people. We should clean out sin in our own lives, in the church, not to get saved, but because we are saved. Being saved means we've been freed from this old life. We're not going back there, so get rid of it. Don't walk in it. Does that make sense? And if we don't do that, what happens? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Here's the reality of life in the body of Christ. Whether you realize it or not, the sin of the Christians around you is the sin you think is normal in the Christian life. 
The sin that other believers tolerate is the sin you will be more likely to tolerate. And so when you get into a church where sin can be publicly, openly, unrepentantly practiced and there's no concern, guess what you're more likely to do? Publicly, openly, unrepentantly practice sin. You become like the people you're around. Paul would say later, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. We become like the people we're closest to. And a person who persists in craziness, they're gonna make you crazy, aren't they? Right? Families, if you've dealt with substance abuse or addiction, you know that. At some level, until the thing is confronted, it's like, oh my gosh, I have to live in crazy town too with this person if they're gonna keep doing this. And so do I enable it? Do I keep going because I'm being sucked into this thing? Or do I have to say this is not okay? We, we can't have a normal relationship and this go on. And you know that not just one person is affected in that situation, is it? it? The whole family is radically reshaped by that one experience. So it has to be dealt with for the purity of God's people. Third reason and the most important, and here's the thing here. Maybe you hear all this stuff about taking sin seriously and you're like, I kind of like being an unknown person in church. <laughs> you know, all this stuff about membership and accountability and getting judged, like, right? Like, I, I kind of like sitting in the back. And uh, I love you who are sitting in the back, by the way. I don't, uh, no, no ill intent, that's a, <laughs> love all you. No, but, but, but you know, you know, be invisible and, uh, you know, not be known by anyone. I don't want all this membership stuff because I don't want people in my business. Here's, here's what we have to understand. It is the love and blessing of God that you would be accountable to other Christians. Because when your life goes off the rails and we all get off the rails, they are the people God is gonna use to get you off track, back on track. And this gets to the heart of discipline. It is love for the person and saying, I love you too much not to say something and intervene. I love you too much to just live in crazy town. Something's gotta change. Paul says this. This is an amazing sentence. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What's the goal? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does that mean, delivering someone to Satan? It's, it's not like the church having some like, you know, Wiccan like gathering at night and, you know, putting a sex on the, you know, I, first time I read that, I was like, good, why? What is that? Are we going to curse this person? Like, no, that's not what it is. Handing someone over to Satan is handing them over to the dominion of the world. It's saying we can no longer treat you like a brother or sister in Christ because you don't want to live like a brother or sister in Christ. That's all it is. It's saying that you, we are making public the decision you have made, which is to walk out of the covenantal blessed community and live in the world. The church makes that decision. And what that believer experiences, if they are a true believer, do you know what they experience? Life estranged from God and close communion with God and life apart from the covenant blessings of community. And do you know what that should do if it's a true believer? Oh my gosh, I never want to go back there again. Oh, God, save me from this. I don't want any part in this. I need to go back and reconcile and repent. I don't want to live here. I want to be right with God. I want to be right with God's people. I'm going to go back. It makes clear to the person the consequences of their actions. And if that person is a believer, God uses the means of discipline to do what? To save someone on the last day. Do you see how much love is invested in this? It is not loving to keep your mouth shut when people are ruining their lives and other people's lives. It's not. 
Um, so earlier this year, uh, when I was on sabbatical, it, it was a good sabbatical. It was, it was difficult. And, and it was difficult because we had some issues in our extended family that had to be dealt with. And, um, oh man, I, um, yeah, if you've ever been part of an intervention, you know what this is like. Um, where, where someone is, is destroying their life and it's affecting everyone close to them. And, and we had a situation where we had to confront an extended family member. And, and if you've been part of this, you know what it's like. It's you don't have options now, okay? There's only two options. Either you get help today. Here's the help you need. We're gonna give it to you. Please go, listen, get the help you need. Or our relationship with you can't stay the same. And uh, she gave me permission to share all this, by the way. So praise God. Praise God. The, the spirit of God was just tangible in that conversation. And, and she said, I'm so glad you said something. Thank you. Hopped in the car right then, went to a facility, got the help she needed. She's a different person today. But she wrote Cashel and, and me a letter. And, and two things she said, um, two things were just so beautiful. Um, First thing she said was, you saved my life. And the second thing she said is, now I know how much you really love me because you were willing to do this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that is the goal of discipline. We are not the judge, jury, and executioner of the universe but we are called lovingly to steer people back and to make evident the pain that they have inflicted and are causing because people can do this to their lives in ways that are spiritually ruinous and we say, I love you too much to let you go on. And that gets to the last point. Boy, everything about church discipline better be saturated in what? Love. Love, because hear me, family, uh, you know, in our membership class, we don't even talk about church discipline. You know, we talk about restoration. How do we practice church restoration? Because that's the end goal, right? We should be clear from the upfront. The goal is to restore you to a relationship with God and other people. So how do we discipline with care? Well, um, care is involved. Uh, I love Gordon Fee and his commentary. He says that we can be so zealous to exercise church discipline that we excommunicate everyone from the church, including ourselves, <laughs> Right? If this isn't saturated with grace and prayer and forgiveness, we're all gonna end up with a church of one, okay? Because all of us fall short of the standard. All of us. So how do we do this well? It's important to note that this passage is talking about the most extreme kind of church discipline, okay? This is not normal, everyday church discipline. This is the kind of church discipline where there is a public scandal, newsworthy in the church. We got to do something right now. It's what we'd call DEFCON 1, right? <laughs> this is the nuclear issue. But what is Paul telling him to do? He says, don't associate with these people. Don't eat with these people. What did that mean practically? You know, it sounds a lot like shunning, doesn't it? Like practice of shunning. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Like literally you don't acknowledge a person exists. And if that's what Paul would be saying, it's literally like you see that person on the side of the street and you walk to the other side, right? And you, you kind of walk like this. Is that what Paul's calling for here? No, he's actually not. I don't think so. And here's why. Another passage on church discipline clarifies what Paul means here. Go to the next slide. 
Paul talks about not associating with people in unrepentant sin, but then he defines what that means in 2 Thessalonians. Go to the next slide. He says this. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. It's the same word, do not associate with him, that he may be ashamed. But then what does he go on to say? Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother or sister. So I just take that to mean that having nothing to do with them doesn't mean literally not acknowledging they exist. I think here's what it means in the most extreme cases, there are times where a church has to come together and says, say, we can't regard you as a brother or sister in Christ. So A, you're not part of the membership. B, that might mean in some cases withholding communion from them. Communion, what we celebrate each week or each month, it's an assurance of salvation. And there are times when a person publicly, persistently acts in sin where we say, you can't take this till you repent. We can't give you false assurance. You need to come back to the Lord. And that's a loving measure to bring the person back. In crazy cases, right, where the person is a threat to the church, either because of their teaching or their presence, maybe we do remove them and they, and they can't come. But again, it's important to see there's not one wooden process in the New Testament for discipline. There are different levels that call for different responses. And what we're dealing with here is level six. Did you know there's five levels before that? I just kind of invented them this week. But here are the six levels of church discipline that I, I invented. They might be right. Maybe there's 27, but I came up with six, okay? Level one of discipline is self-discipline. <laughs> you know what the healthiest church is? One where people just repent to themselves. <laughs> oh man, I sinned. Lord, I'm sorry. I confess it. Help me walk in closer communion with you. Man, a church where people do that? Healthy church. <laughs> Very healthy church because we cut things off before they can metastasize. Right, Paul says later in the book that if we judge ourselves, we will not fall into judgment, <laughs> right? And he's talking about discipline. So judge yourself. That's, that's commitment number one, be killing sin in your own life. When that doesn't happen, Jesus talks about one-to-one correction in Matthew 18, where if you see sin in another believer's life that's public, that's persistent, there's an opportunity to lovingly address it and redemptively point them toward the right path. Level three would be if a person persists in that and Jesus puts up a procedure to bring witnesses. Level four would be something like us as elders getting involved in an issue, which is talked about throughout the Old New Testament. Uh, And and by the way, if we formally get involved in something, that just means it hasn't been resolved at the interpersonal level. We're not flying around as elders trying to just meddle everywhere, right? Like, just have healthy relationships with the Christians closest to you and you don't need that. You don't need any formal process because the informal loving relationships are happening all the time. The the level five kind of stuff is when we have to bring it to our membership. And that's not a Sunday gathering. That's our voting membership. When we talk about this is a dangerous person or a persistent sin, we have to come up with a way of dealing with this together and calling them to repentance. And level six is DEFCON 1. That's what we're talking about here, okay? Level six, Paul says, there's no process for dealing with a DEFCON one, right? Like, well, someone, someone better go to that person privately, right? And then if they, if they don't listen, then you bring witnesses. There's none of that here, right? It's just, this is imminent danger, get the person out. That's all it is, right? And there are times where if there's criminal civil law violations, public scandal, imminent threat or harm to someone, false teaching, uh, the elders aren't waiting around to get everybody's opinion on what to do. We're not because we're shepherds and, and we take care of wolves, okay? We just, we just step in and deal with it and then let you know as you need to. The voting members know as needs to be known, okay? Praise God, we haven't had a lot of DEFCON ones. 
We've had a lot of beautiful informal discipline and repentance. We've had a few times where we've had to go all the way. A lot of times people repent. Sometimes people don't want to repent and they just leave. They opt out of the process and they walk away. Sometimes they come back and it's glorious. It's beautiful. Sometimes they don't come back and we pray for them. It's surgery. I'm sure we've botched a few surgeries, but that doesn't mean it's not necessary. And it starts at the inner personal level. Here's the million dollar question and I'll end. I know we're over. Listen, this is important stuff, okay? How do you exercise this with care? Do you know what it means? It means the people you are closest to in Christ that you address in gently. Next slide. What does Paul say in Galatians 6? If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Taking heed lest you too be tempted. Don't come in with a superiority complex. It is gentleness from beginning to end. I love the way John Chrysostom, the fourth century church father, puts it. He says, those who rebuke need to be very gentle in order to persuade them to bear the cut. Don't you see how gently surgeons treat their patients when they must burn and cut them? Those who rebuke must act this way even more. For rebukes are even sharper than fire and knives. Isn't that true? Boy, words wound us more than anything. They make people react. As a result, surgeons take great care to make the patients bear the cutting quietly. They cut as tenderly as possible, even giving in a little and giving time for the patient to take a breath. That's the surgery of correction. What does that mean? Four things and then we're done. Boy, before you correct anyone, please go through these four steps, okay? Please, please. I don't want botched surgeries here, okay? I've done it a few times. I don't want to do it. This is, these are the four steps. First, make sure you're motivated by love. Motivated by love. What does that mean? You've already forgiven the person in your heart before you talk to them, like Jesus says in Matthew 11. You've already Put away bitterness and malice. You're not doing this to get back at them. You're not doing it to punish them. You're not doing it because I just needed to get this off my chest. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Get it off your chest. Talk to God about that, okay? Then talk to the person, okay? It's motivated by love. Proverbs 27 says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It should be so evident to the person that you love them. In fact, I like saying that to people. I love you so much. I love you, and that's why I'm talking to you right now, and I think it is to your great benefit to listen to what I'm gonna say. So would you be willing to hear? Here's why, right? They should know that they are being loved in the process of talking. Second thing, you better take your time before you do this. (laughs) Prayerful deliberation. Uh, Here's the first question to answer. Is it worth the fight? Is it something I should address? You know what? There's times people sin and you know what you should do? Overlook it. (laughs) Just forgive them in your heart and just keep going. In fact, that's sort of the norm. You know why Proverbs 19.11 says it's to a person's glory to overlook an offense? There's lots of little annoying things people do and you know what you should do? Just forget about them. (laughs) Seriously, just forget about them. Like, like, people are really difficult if you haven't noticed. And so are you, okay? Like, and so am I. People are really annoying and difficult and don't listen well and talk over people and show up late to meetings or insensitive and say dumb crap and all sorts of stuff, okay? Do you know what that's called? Bearing with people. 
just forbearing with people because they're difficult, all right? Like, you, are, you know this if you're a spouse, just forbear. Don't make every hill the hill to die or you will die a million deaths, right? Just let it go. Ask, is it worth addressing? Do you know when it's worth addressing? When it's public, it's persistent. And it's clear people are harming other people or Christ's reputation is at stake. When you see the public persistent, then you know, okay, I'm close enough to this person, I need to say something, right? Jesus would say doing it with deliberation means taking the log out of what? Your own eye before you try to take the speck out of the other person's eye. Huh, have I ever committed that sin too, right? That thing that bothers me so much about them, is that my thing too? And guess what your next step is? Repent of that thing. (laughs) Go repent and then you're in a great position because you can say, hey, I've struggled with this for years. Here's what God is teaching me. Can I teach you what God is teaching me? I want to walk alongside you. That's a different posture, isn't it? That's a humble posture. That's a helpful posture. If you don't go in with that, good luck. It's not going to go well. If you go in and not owning your contribution to the problem, that's a one big one too, right? If there's sin on both sides, own your contribution. And you say, Jeff, it's only 2%. Own your 2%. And then when you go to that person, don't say, I own my 2%. Don't use percentages. I'm just, just pro tip there, okay? Don't use percentages. Husbands, just pro tip. Um, right? Own your part. Prayerful deliberation. Number three. Number three, give it at the right time in the right way. Don't, don't send an email at one in the morning. Please, please. We're family. We should be able to talk to each other, right? Don't, you know, don't fly off the handle. And say, even if you have to write it out, write it out, then say it to the person because you love them in person. Did, does anyone like that email? I don't like that email. And, and if you send me that email, you're going to have to talk to me in person anyway. So you might as well just talk to me in person anyway, right? I might not even read the email. I might just say, hey, let's talk in person, okay? So don't waste your time on the email. I've wasted my time on the email before. Just trust me. (sighs) Bad idea. Bad idea. We're family. It should be timely. It should be timely. Hey, can we get a second to talk? I love you. I want to talk about something. Is now not good? Another time's fine. (laughs) It's not the end of the world. I just want to talk to you, right? (laughs) Help them to bear the cut, Right? Timely, fourth, should be carefully considered. Deliver in a carefully considered way. Here are some questions that that help me. Can I clearly articulate my concern? Okay, it's gotta be a concrete example that I'm giving to the person, right? Can't be, you're arrogant, bro. Okay, thanks for letting me know. Well, well, what does that mean? You just come across as arrogant. Kind of fool yourself, man. Okay, thanks, can you give me an example of that? I don't know, man, you just, people say you're arrogant, you know? Like, thank you. I feel so loved right now by that, right? Like, that's not... That's not helpful at all. It can't be some vague spiritual global problem. It's got to be a concrete example you're talking about. And then it's got to be something the Bible talks about as a problem. If you can't support your concern from Scripture, there's no concern worth addressing. This takes time, doesn't it? (laughs) Told you, this takes time to do it well. All right? And then you want to present it in such a way that the person is best suited to accept it. Proverbs 16, the wisdom of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. How can I put this in a way I'd want to hear it? Give the rebuke to yourself first and say, how would I react to that? And then I can give the correction to the other person. Pretty tough, huh? <laughs> this, is, this is not just flying off the handle. This is surgery and we need help. Here's the good news for us though. We have the perfect example in the gospel. 
Because the gospel says this. The gospel says something's wrong with you, doesn't it? (laughs) Jesus comes and says, your sin is so bad, it'll separate you from God forever. There's no harder news than that. But the moment Jesus gives that, what does he say? I love you so much that I paid the debt of sin and bridged the gap because I want to live in relationship with you. That is perfect truth and grace. Where I am crystal clear about how big the problem is, but I'm crystal clear about how much I love you and have done everything I can to be with you. So don't reject the offer. See, if we're loved that well by Jesus, here's the beauty of of being a gospel people who believe that message. You know what the gospel says? Like there is something screwed up with me. So if you come to me and say, Jeff, there's something screwed up with you, guess what? (laughs) Yep. You don't know the half of it. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to know what's in my heart. Yeah, you you wouldn't want me as your pastor if you knew what was in my heart. Um, It's ugly in here. It's real ugly, real ugly. And, and that's what the gospel says, Jeff. The problem's worse than you think. You know what that means? When people criticize me, I'm not shocked. <laughs> yeah, there's a problem. You know what the gospel says, though? I'm so loved that Jesus was glad to die for me. I'm so delighted in by him. So you know what? If you get criticized, does it define you? No, Jesus defines you. Jesus says who you are. And if that person is motivated by love and doing it in a biblical way, guess what? That can only be God's redemptive purpose in your life to make you holier. So even if it's hard to hear, thank you, Jesus. I just became more like you today by receiving that. And if the person's just flying off the handle and they're crazy, well, then they flew off the handle and they're crazy. Doesn't define you. Jesus defines you. But you see the freedom in that. I pray we'd be that kind of community full of grace and truth. Let's pray. So Father, thank you for giving us that ultimate example in your son, Jesus, who tells us the worst things about us and then loves us to the heights. God, would we be so careful with this surgery? Lord, to perform it when needed in each other's lives and to view it as a grace when other people do it with us, that we would look more like you, Jesus, every day, full of grace and truth. In your name, amen.